Okay, good. It's a delight to be back, and hope you enjoyed your dinner, as did I. Is there something about Chick-fil-A that just is part of the Southern experience? Or <laughs> we, don't, we don't have Chick-fil-A <laughs> where I come from, so hopefully the Vitola Genin discussion didn't create any uh, ethical concerns for you as you enjoyed your chicken sandwich. <clears throat> okay. In the last talk, I mentioned briefly discussed the heliocentrism issue. So what I'd like to do is actually return to that a little bit as a way to think about how Christians in the past have negotiated some of these sorts of issues similar to what we are facing now. I sometimes tell my students, you know, lucky you, you get to live at a time when the church gets to wrestle with these sorts of serious questions. We haven't done this for a couple of hundred years. And they say, I don't want to live in a time when the church wrestles with these kinds of questions. I want to live in a time when the answers are, are there for me. But um, such as it is, God has appointed that we live in this time and in this place. And this is the, uh, the time that we are given. And it is a time when the church is wrestling through these things. Just as an aside, though, um, I think that as long as the church can learn to dialogue graciously on these points to the best of our ability, and we're not perfect, we're humans, right? So we are going to make mistakes, absolutely. But to the best of our ability, if we can dialogue graciously on these issues, at the end of the day, whether one accepts one version or the other, if we recognize one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and then if the world can see that we can dialogue charitably on these things, then it won't become a missional problem. It won't be something that people on the outside look in and say, oh, look at those Christians fighting over these things. We're meant to be um, known for our love, and this is an opportunity where we can show love. Now, I understand that you know, for, for the different denominations and whatnot, this is can be quite a struggle in certain areas. I, I don't diminish that. But if we can do it in a charitable way, I think if we can learn from, the, learn from history on that point, we'll be ahead of the curve on this one. Okay, let's move back to something that is not theologically challenging for most of us in the present day. So if we look back in history, we can see that the idea that our solar system, and even to use the word solar system is to imply sort of a Copernican way of looking at our universe. Nicholas Copernicus um, was the first individual to propose sort of a coherent mathematical model of a heliocentric solar system, and you can see when he lived. So up until that time, the view of how the universe was constructed was, was not viewed to be heliocentric. The notion was, was that the Earth was at the center of the universe, it was a geocentric or Earth-centered system, and everything went around the Earth. So Copernicus's idea that the Sun might be the center was viewed as something that was a new sort of mathematical way of thinking about things, and it was also, it kind of came onto the radar of the church as well, that perhaps there was you know, something theological here that might be concerning. So, this is a very famous quote from Luther. Now, I don't want to press Luther too far on this particular point because Luther wasn't a scientist. And as far as we know, this was kind of just a, like an off-the-side, kind of off-the-cuff kind of comment. So this isn't perhaps as he's had opportunity to reflect deeply on this. But he says, there's talk of a new astrologer. So astrology back then, he's, that's actually not a bad way to... It, astrologer now doesn't mean what it meant back then. So there's a new astronomer who wants to prove that the earth moves and goes around in, instead of the sky, the sun, and the moon, just as if somebody were moving on a carriage or ship might hold that he was sitting still and at rest while the earth and the trees walked and moved. 
But that, that is how things are nowadays. When a man wishes to be clever, he must invent something special, and the way he does it must, needs to be the best. The fool wants to turn the whole art of astronomy upside down. However, as Holy Scripture tells us, so did Joshua bid the sun to stand still and not the earth. Copernicus didn't really encounter too much resistance. If, you know, and again, there's a lot of history here that makes for very fascinating reading, but one of the things that we can see in the response to Galileo, who was the next individual to come along and sort of further this line of investigation in a major way, we can see in the responses to Galileo that Copernicus's views weren't seen as particularly theologically threatening because it was thought that he was just sort of proposing a hypothetical model, kind of a mathematical map model to describe how, you know, a solar system might work mathematically. But it wasn't viewed as particularly threatening because it wasn't seen to have much traction in reality. So it's a nice model for the philosophers and the mathematicians, but it doesn't really work that way. Well, Galileo comes along in the late 1600s, and it's actually remarkable to think that we're only about 400 years removed from that time. Just shows you how quickly science advances um, <clears throat> since that time. And Galileo actually had some observational evidence that brought that he could bring to the table. So he was one of the first individuals to construct and use a reasonably high-powered telescope. And with that, he observed the, the moons of Jupiter. And he also observed that Venus has phases. Actually, I was on a hunting trip many years ago in the north of British Columbia. And we were, it was a nice winter's night. And I was sitting around the campfire with a bunch of guys after a day's hunting. And if, you know, if you're a hunter, you might know that you know, sometimes people have spotting scopes, which are basically low-power telescopes. And I happened to notice that Jupiter was visible. And I said, oh, you know, we should set up Gary's spotting scope and have a look at Jupiter, because I bet you we can see the moons. So we did, and we had this beautiful experience of looking at the moons of Jupiter, and then we had this fantastic conversation about science and faith. And not everybody in the hunting party was, you know, of the same mind as me, and I became painfully aware that there were many firearms around the uh, location <laughs> at the time. Oh, it all worked out fine. It was an example to have charitable dialogue, and also to appreciate God's creation. But what Galileo saw as he looked at Jupiter was that it has small moons that go around it. So here we have, and we still call them the Galilean moons to this day, the four that are visible in that manner. And what that did was it sort of provided in microcosm what a solar system might look like. Here we have a body you know, a at a center, and we have things going around that. So could that potentially be a sun, like a model of what the sun and the earth look like? The other thing that Galileo observed, one other thing that I don't have on the slide here, is that he saw that the moon had mountains on it, that the moon was not a uniform sphere. And up until that point, everybody thought that everything celestial was perfect in the sense that it was a perfect sphere. So that was theologically troubling as well. I know it seems a little bit odd to think about these points of theology that don't have any traction with us, but they had quite a bit of traction back then. The other thing he observed was that Venus has phases, just like our moon does. So Venus waxes and wanes. Venus will appear at sometimes as a full Venus and as a crescent Venus. Now, that is something that cannot be squared with the pre previous model of geocentrism that was prevalent at that time and that place. So this observation pretty much ruled out Ptolemaic geocentrism, but an additional model was also developed at this time uh, by Tycho Brahe, and he had a different model. So this is a model wherein the Earth is still the unmoving center of the system, but the Sun and a few of the planets 
sorry, the sun is the center of a few of the planets, but then the Earth is still the unmoving center of the entire system. Brahe's model is basically the idea that if you could reach in from the outside and grab the Earth and hold it still and let everything else go whirling around it, that's the mathematical model that Brahe was proposing. And there's actually no way to distinguish between those two models, or there wasn't at the time technologically. But it was theologically a more satisfying model because of the commitment, theological commitment to an un, in, um, immobile Earth. So what we needed was a different point of view, and we needed a different point of view for the Earth itself. And this has to do with something called stellar parallax, this idea that if the Earth actually was moving through space, we should be able to see this particular effect when we look at stars that are close to us relative to stars that are far away. So I sometimes get my classes to do this, so I'm going to get you guys to do this too. If you want to observe parallax, take, it, take your hands, put your fingers up with me. If everybody does this, then I won't feel as foolish. There you go. Although I'm the only one on the live stream, right? Okay. So put one close to your face, and then put another one in line farther away. Now close one eye, and then wiggle your head back and forth. You can see that the relative position of your two fingers, seems to, they seem to switch places with one another. So what was... A, expected was if the Earth is going around the Sun, that our perspective would shift. So a nearby star and a faraway star, as the Earth is going around the Sun, we should be able to see the relative position of stars shifting to one another. And that would be very good evidence that the Earth was in fact in motion and not the Sun. So the idea was plain, and it was easy to see how it could be tested, but technologically there was no way to do this back in the 1600s, just because you need very high powerful, very high magnification powerful telescopes in order to do this. There wasn't an appreciation for just how far away the stars are. Can you imagine trying to detect parallax if I held two fingers together like this and then I stood across the street and you wiggled your head back and forth a bit? You wouldn't be able to see it. Now, you might be able to see it if you had a very high power telescope and very precise um, ways of referencing, but it wasn't accessible to them at this time. Now, the inability of... So we were able to observe this in the 1800s, and there were actually other convincing lines of evidence that came in prior to that time as well. But the in inability of scientists to observe this stellar parallax in the 1600s was taken as confirmation that the Copernican opinion, as it was called, was not only unscriptural, but also poor science. So there was this expectation this observation should be made, and it was felt that it, the observation, that, that the tests had been done and the observations had failed. So let's go back to John Edwards from the 1600s. I quoted him on solar fusion. Well, he didn't know he was talking about solar fusion, but we quoted him previously. So here's John Edwards, 1696, discussing theologically what the issues might be with respect to heliocentrism versus geocentrism. So he says, the Copernican opinion seems to confront a principle, a higher principle than that of reason. So languages have shifted a bit, so it's going to take a little bit of translation as we go through, but of course languages shifting was something that we talked about previously as an example. But he's basically saying there's a higher principle to that of science or reason. And when the chips are down, you go with the Bible. You don't go with science. That's basically what he's saying. He says, if we will speak like men of religions and as such own the Bible, so own, like do you own it, as in do you stand on its authority, we must acknowledge that their assertion is against the plain history of the holy book. 
For there we read that the sun stood still in Joshua's time and went back in King Hezekiah's. Now, and this is the same passage that Luther was referencing as well. Now, this relation is either true or false. If it be the latter, then inspired scripture is false. So what Edwards is willing to say is, if you can prove to me that heliocentrism is true, then that indicates to me that scripture is false. It says, if it be the former, i.e. if the relation really is true, then the sun hath a diurnal motion about the earth. For the sun standing still could not be strange and wonderful if it, unless its general course was to move. So for Edwards, if you have to make a choice between science and scripture, between reason and the Bible, then you go with scripture, not with reason. Okay. Now, that's obviously not the situation in the present day. Most of you are not losing sleep over the heliocentric nature of our solar system. But have you ever paused to wonder why you are a Copernican Christian? Or why, you know, for me growing up, you know, Darwin was a bad word at church. You know, if you heard the word Dar Darwin, that was bad. Evolution was a bad word. You don't talk about that. But Copernicus? No big deal. Copernican never read, you know, if somebody called somebody a Copernican, not that anybody ever did, it wouldn't have registered as a bad thing. But have you ever wondered why that's the case? Interestingly, there is no scriptural support for heliocentrism. And if there was, we would have seen those texts brought to bear in the conversation that Galileo and others engaged. There simply is no scriptural support for heliocentrism at all. It's just not there. At best, you can argue that scripture is silent on the issue. Now, I'm not 100%. I looked at some of Answers in Genesis's materials on this case, and I believe, I may be wrong, maybe Nathaniel can correct me, but I believe that this is the position that Answers in Genesis takes, that scripture is simply silent on this issue. Although that is very much not what was thought to be the case back in the 1600s. They very much thought that the verses, one example there on the bottom from Ecclesiastes 1.5, they very much thought that these verses had a bearing on the, on the discussion. So, how is it that we've made our peace with Copernicus? Perhaps you don't even know. Perhaps you didn't even realize that there might have been this issue to make peace with. Although, interestingly, there are still a very few Christians who do hold to a geocentrist view, and they can be found. So it's, and uh, for that matter, we've got NBA players that hold to a flat earth, right? So, <laughs> Okay. So why is it that we're not troubled by Copernicus? In the present day, most Christians are perfectly comfortable with the idea that Scripture in some ways speaks in, to the original audience in a way that the original audience would have understood it, such that it would not have been a barrier to their understanding. So one way to think about is, this is that Scripture is speaking in a phenomenological manner. So we even say this now, the sun rises, the sun sets, as it were. Even though those things are scientifically false, as it were, the sun does not rise, the earth turns, the sun does not set, the earth continues to turn, and so on. But that's phenomenological language. It's from the perspective of what we observe, and it's not considered untruthful to speak about things in that way. Right? Nobody says, Dennis, you're a liar when you say that this, it's a beautiful sunset. Okay, so, and of course the analogy there to evolution is is fairly straightforward. We should at least, as Christians, be open to the idea that perhaps Scripture is speaking in a phenomenological manner and speaking in a way that the original audience would understand. So when we hear in Genesis that God is stating that different species are being created or different organisms are being created according to their kind, and kind being defined as reproduction, it's not surprising that that would be a phenomenological way of describing things. 
the ancients would not have had an access or an understanding to larger spans of time to understand that perhaps species might shift over large periods of time. Okay, so the 1800s saw significant developments in biology, namely Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. Darwin was the first to provide good evidence that modern species are derived from ancestral species through a series of transitional forms, and we've seen in the previous lecture how that particular hypothesis continues to garner very strong support from modern scientific enterprise. Like heliocentrism, evolution has encountered resistance from within the Christian community. Evolution is fairly widely doubted among Christians. It doesn't take much effort to look at surveys of North Americans, what their, find out what their opinions are on evolution. And this is, a, this is a theory that is widely doubted by Christians. And um, most Christians feel that there's insuffic insufficient evidence to support it as a viable scientific theory, especially for human evolution, right? If you look at the different sort of Pew uh, Forum um, survey results, there's usually more resistance or more reluctance to say that humans might be a part of this particular process. As we saw in the last lecture, though, um, modern-day genomics nicely fits with other lines of evidence that we've seen, and that evidence is quite substantial, that humans do indeed share in this process of evolution, that we are the products of an evolutionary process. Now, what I'm going to speak to now is that not only did we evolve, not only did humans come about through, you know, not only did God bring about humans through an evolutionary process, but that also took place as a population rather than starting from a single ancestral couple. Okay, so let's just briefly review. We had Darwin's ideas about him proposing that species share common ancestors, the idea that populations become genetically separated. We've got changes, so this is just review from the previous talk. We've got these different changes that perhaps can accumulate, giving a shift in average characteristics over time. The differences may lead to new species over time. And then we drew that analogy to languages, how languages shift over time, populations becoming separated, differences showing up, averages, average um, characteristics changing. And we made the point that both languages and species are information systems that are copied imperfectly, so we have this opportunity for change. And then I showed you these uh, texts to sort of illustrate this process using language as an example. Now, here's the point that I want to make here, is that languages don't start with two individuals heading off and starting their own language. Likewise, species don't start, typically, with two individuals going off and starting a new species. Or they languages don't start when two individuals start suddenly speaking a different or a highly different version of the language that they spoke before. Species don't start when there's some sort of dramatic mutation that makes them different from the previous organisms that they were a part with, part of. So evolution, like with languages, is all about average characteristics of populations shifting over time. Now, so the idea that any large mammal, us included, would have started as a population of just two solitary individuals would be extremely unlikely even if, you know, even in the absence of any sort of genetic evidence. And that's because population shifting over time is how evolution works. It's a gradient. Okay. Now, I made this, I'm not sure if I showed you this slide or not, but one way that you can tell if species are connected with one another is we've sort of seen some of these lines of evidence in the previous talk. We can go around the world and easily find related languages I use this example in the book. Um, I grew up 
with one set of grandparents as Frisian speakers with a last name like Venema, or if you're Frisian, Fenema. That, it's not surprising that I come, some of my ancestry comes from the Netherlands. And what was interesting to me as a child, I, rec- I relate this somewhat in the book as well, is that I would notice my grandparents speaking West Frisian, and I would notice how uncannily similar some of those words were relative to English. And what I didn't know then, and I, but I do know now, is that English, modern-day English speakers and modern-day West Frisian speakers, Friesland is a province of the Netherlands with its own distinct language, those two language groups share a common ancestral population of speakers that lived at about the year 400 on the continent. And then some of them populated the British Isles and some of them stayed put. So Fries, uh, modern-day Fries and modern-day English are about as closely related as two languages can be, but yet they are separate languages. And this sentence in English and in Frisian are pronounced almost essentially the same. Butter, bread, and green cheese is good English and good Fries. It's a nice little pithy saying. And the pronunciation in both languages is almost identical. But again, the point is, is that these populations became distinct over time, and that it wasn't just that two individuals went and started English and left the population of you know, ancestral speakers on the, on the continent to become Frisians. Okay, so modern genomics indicates not only that we arose through an evolutionary process, but also that we did so as a population. The evidence is such that at no time in our evolutionary history has our ancestral population size been below about 10,000 individuals. Now, This is based on looking at measures of current genetic diversity in humans. So the idea is is that we look at present-day humans, we understand processes of recombination, mutation, and that sort of thing, and we can use that to infer in the past what our ancestral population sizes might have been. Now, there's a number of different ways that you can do this, and I go through a number of them in the book. All the methods that we've applied to humans so far agree that we descend from this population of about 10,000 individuals. Now, it's a very common question at that point for people to say, well, where did those 10,000 come from? It's a little bit like asking, well, where did the first English speakers come from? Well, they would have come from a population that was almost identical to them, and so on, and so on, and so on in the past. So these 10,000 individuals don't sort of just drop into existence or pop out of nowhere. We're talking about a population that if we go farther back in time, eventually we would share common ancestors with species like Neanderthals, or I I should say Neanderthals now, that's the proper way to pronounce it now, and then species like the Denisovans, Homo erectus, apes in general, chimpanzees, gorillas, and so on. So the idea is, is that we've had this long lineage that has split along the way, and at no time point in any portion of that whole lineage has our population been below about 10,000 individuals, measuring back at least to about 18 million years ago or more. Okay, so how do we go about doing this? How do we measure population sizes? There's a number of different ways to do this, and it's decidedly tricky to try to explain this sort of material. It's one thing for me to show you a picture of vitiligen and pseudogenes in the human genome. It's like, wow, that's very qualitative evidence. I can see it and I can understand it. This evidence is quantitative. It's based on variation, a DNA variation that we see in present-day organisms. So it's a little bit harder. I can't just show you a nice picture of, like, say, a pseudogene or something along those lines. Here's one method of estimating population sizes. 
that employs genetic markers that are linked close together on chromosomes. So if we use just a line to represent a chromosome and we put little hash marks on it to represent different locations on a chromosome, and then we'll use different letters to indicate different DNA letter variations, excuse me, that are present in those different spots. So those variations could be as small as one single DNA letter difference between you and me, for example. If we look in the present day, and this is just a large population of individuals, this is a pedigree. If anybody's had a genetics class, maybe you've had to deal with some of these pedigrees. So squares just indicate males, circles indicate females, and then the lines just indicate marriages and descent. So if we look in the present day generations, the most recent ones, we might find a number of individuals that have the same genetic markers in the same spatial pattern. Now there's a couple of different hypotheses for how that might come to be. It could be that mutation events independently mutated to provide those different patterns in the different people. That's not very likely, although it's formally possible. Another possibility is that recombination events that sort of you might remember crossing over in biology, sort of chromosomes getting together and then breakage and rejoining to mix and match different variation between different chromosomes. It's possible that different recombination events produce that. Again, possible but not very likely. What's more likely and much more probable is that these individuals have inherited this little snippet of DNA with these different variants from some common ancestor that they share in their past. So they all inherited it from their great-grandpa or something like that, as opposed to independently assembling it. So you can choose markers that are really closely spaced on a chromosome, and the probability of recombination mixing and matching those is quite low because the closer things are, the less likely you'll have that crossover event that happens. Or you can also take marker pairs that are farther apart. And if you take those marker pairs that are farther apart, they actually will recombine more quickly, and as a result, they will mix and match more quickly as you go back. So if you take marker pairs that are really close together, it allows us to look a very far distance back in human populations. And if you take marker pairs that are farther apart, then it allows you to look at shorter distances. So one of the nice things about this particular way of doing this is it allows us to scale it relative to time and look back over the last few hundred thousand years to see what population sizes may have looked like for humans as we became human. Now, these marker pairs, not that you're going to be able to see that, but what you're seeing there is a phylogeny or a tree of relatedness for present-day humans. So these are humans that live you know, in the present day. At the bottom of the graph would be um, various um, African populations. And actually, it's non-African populations that, that are at the very top. The bulk of this is African populations. It, you might not know this, but the bulk of DNA variation in modern-day humans is in sub-Saharan Africa. Anybody who's not sub-Saharan Africa comes from the out-of-Africa migration that happened at about 60,000 years ago, plus or minus. And it's a very small population that moves out of Africa and then populates the rest of the planet. So if you're painfully white like me, then that means that you've got less genetic variation than our brothers and sisters in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. So maybe that's why white guys can't jump. I don't know. <laughs> so these different patterns of genetic letters they correlate with what we know about human relatedness. So we see different ethnic groups around the planet that have these little patterns of markers, and they have patterns of markers that are consistent with their ethnic group. So these markers are behaving as, as we would expect them to behave when we look at DNA sequencing around the planet. 
Now, this kind of thing is a computational biologist's, um, you know, they're amazed by this. The ability, you know, this is their, their, their fantasy that you can have this amount of data to work with to describe different human populations. So you won't be able to see this, but what this is, is looking at numbers of marker pairs for different chromosomes in the human genome, and then simply asking the question, based on the diversity of marker pairs that we see in these different populations around the planet, how many ancestors do you need to account for that particular people group? So at the top left there, you've got human chromosome one. The first column is a, sub is a um, no, it's not a sub-Saharan African population. It's non, some non-sub-Saharan African population. They looked at 1.3 million pairs of these markers on the first chromosome alone. They crunched the numbers, and the estimate is that it takes about 2,800 individuals to be ancestors of that particular people group relative to that chromosome. And what you can do is you can just go around the planet and do that for everybody on the planet, all the different people groups, and then just add up the numbers. And when you do, it comes to that about 10,000 individuals for the planet as a whole, for humans as a whole. What's really nice about this particular way of doing things, maybe I'll just go back for a second, looking at different marker pairs like this, is it's a way to estimate population sizes that's independent of mutation frequency. Because these are not new mutations that are happening. This is just the segregation and recombination of already existing mutations. So it's one way to do this analysis without having to make an estimate of mutation frequency. Now, you can do estimates of population size that are based on mutation frequency, and that, those estimates also come to about 10,000. But they, also, they use different methodologies and have independent assumptions. Okay. So that gives us some confidence because we see these different methods of estimating population size that use different assumptions, but yet converge on that same answer. This gives us confidence that what we're looking at is, in fact, accurate. There's another method of estimating ancestral population sizes that actually neither uses mutation frequency, nor does it use estimates of recombination frequency. Now, we can measure mutation frequency in the present. We can measure recombination frequency in the present without trouble. But there are other methods available that actually don't even use those things. And this is one particular example that I like to use. One method of estimating population sizes uses the pattern of relatedness among close, closely related species. So in some cases, what we will see is certain gene variants that don't nicely fit with the overall species pattern. So I've shown you evidence previously that humans are most closely related to chimps, and then next most closely related to gorillas. Now one thing to keep in mind is as populations separate and go their separate ways, as they speciate, they have genetic variation within them while they're undergoing that process. Okay? So there's going to be genetic variation present in a population as it's undergoing a speciation event. So what that means is you can have this particular effect take place. This is something called incomplete lineage sorting. I talk about it in the book, and it's a bit challenging to understand, but I'll do my best to walk you, walk you through it. If you look at the yellow variant, so here's two different DNA variants, yellow and blue, in this ancestral population before it splits to become the common ancestral population of gorillas and the human chimp common ancestor, and then later on it also splits. The human chimp common ancestor population diverges to become present-day humans and present-day chimpanzees. The yellow and blue DNA variants are present in the population of all, the common ancestral population of all three species before it goes through this process. You can see that the yellow DNA variant is retained in the human lineage, 
and it's also retained in the gorilla lineage. The blue variant, on the other hand, is lost in the human lineage, and it's lost in the gorilla lineage, but it's retained in the chimpanzee lineage. So what this means is for this particular little bit of DNA, the human genome will actually more closely match the gorilla genome rather than the chimpanzee genome. Okay. So this is called incomplete lineage sorting, and the idea is that not all the variation in a source population will equally sort down. Okay, that's a bit confusing, and it's genetics. Let's take an example, an analogy, and language can help us here again as well. So here I am, a Canadian, speaking to you as Americans. So I don't need to tell you that Canadian and American English do have a few differences, but if you've ever been to the United Kingdom, you would know that the differences between Canadian English and American English are rather small compared to the differences you would experience if you went to the United Kingdom. So Canadian and American English consistently group together to the exclusion of British English, and the reason for that is fairly simple. We share a more recent common ancestral population of speakers than either of us do with the Brits. Okay? So we are closer relatives, as it were, and here's just some automotive terms that nicely make the point. If I came to you know, a, a, a gas station in the United States and said that I needed my windscreen cleaned and you would find the stuff you needed to do that in the boot, and could you please check to make sure I have enough petrol and so on, that would seem rather odd. So Americans and Canadians group together more frequently than we do with British English. Despite that overall pattern, however, there are certain features of Canadian English that group more closely with British English. One example on that front is the O-U-R spellings versus O-R spellings. So Canadians have this funny habit of spelling certain words wrong, and the Brits do as well. And we do this together to the exclusion of American English. So we spell many words with O-U-R, and you spell them with O-R. Okay, so why is this the case? Well, it turns out that O-R versus O-U-R spellings were actually acceptably variable in pre-colonization Britain, and they were present in the early North American European colonist populations. Again, if you're interested in history, you can look at some of the founding documents of the United States, that, and they actually have a number of O-U-R spellings within them, even though that's like anathema now, it was fine back then. Okay, so what happened here is that the OR forms were lost in Britain and Canada, and the OUR form was retained in those two populations, but lost in America. So the effect is known as incomplete lineage sorting, and not all variants in a source population sort down to every descendant population. So why is this of any use to us in understanding population um, sizes in the past? Well, if you can find three entities that have incomplete lineage sorting as part of them, then that gives you some information about the source population that led to those three entities. So the source population had both variants present, and also that both of those variants were present in the ancestral populations of the two most closely related entities, either languages or species. Okay. So what this basically does, it allows us to infer that a certain amount of genetic variation in species was present in common ancestral populations in the past. So if you go back to thinking about this as species, it gives us a handle on the genetic variability of those ancestral populations. So if species 1 and species 3 have the yellow, but species 2 has the blue, even though we know species 1 is more closely related to species 2 on an overall level, 
this gives us information that variants, the yellow and blue variants, were present in their common ancestral population, as well as in the common ancestral population of the source population for all three. So it's a way to look back in time. So what's really interesting about this is that we actually, based on other lines of evidence, had estimates of how often we should see this effect in the gorilla genome prior to our sequencing of the, ge of the gorilla genome. So we actually were able to predict in advance how often we should see this effect. Now, this effect is dependent on our estimates of ancestral population size, and it's also dependent on having our species related in the right order, which we were quite confident of based on the other lines of evidence that I've shown you. So we predicted we would see this about 25% of the time with the human and gorilla genomes. The actual observation came to about 30%, which is still quite in good um, keeping with our estimates. And this is dependent on a population size of about 60,000 individuals. So this is now for the gorilla, human gorilla, chimpanzee, common ancestral population. We were also, we've actually also done this with the orangutan genome now, which is really quite interesting. So orangutans would be the next group down. They would have, we would have parted ways with the orangutan lineage farther back in the past. And as a result, we could expect to see some incomplete lineage sorting between the human genome and the orangutan genome. Because it's been a lot longer since we went our separate ways with orangutan, the lineage to, leading to orangutans, we actually predicted there would only be about 1.2% incomplete lineage sorting in this case. And we observe about 1%, which again was in very good keeping with predictions prior to that. So this gives us good confidence that our estimates of population size, as well as our t the time since speciation and so on, are actually in good keeping with uh, what we're observing. So again, we have confidence that the values that we're looking at, because we can predict them in advance, are actually reliable. What's interesting here, though, just to, to bring the, the point home again, is that this measure does not depend on mutation, and it does not depend on recombination. We're simply looking at the sorting down of pre-existing variation into present-day populations. This is also why that 10,000 value is thought to be human-specific. So it seems like we didn't dip down to about 10,000 until after we had parted ways with the lineage that leads to present-day chimpanzees. Okay, so these, these results indicate that humans have precisely the pattern of incomplete lineage sorting that we expect if indeed we share common ancestral populations with other great apes. So not only is this information about population dynamics over time, this, this pattern is also very difficult to explain unless these populations are related to one another. This is variation where it's not essential for the functioning of these organisms. Just like it's not essential that we, you spell it O-R and I, well, maybe you think it's essential that you spell O-R, but, you know, O-R versus O-U-R, doesn't really matter. Either would do. But we have this particular pattern that we see, so an attempt to sort of explain this pattern from some sort of functional constraint is very, very difficult. Okay, it also shows us that the lineage leading to humans has maintained a large population size over the last 18 million years ago or more. We part ways with the orangutan lineage at about 18 million years ago. So that's why this reaches back to that point. So it also indicates that the population reduction to 10,000 individuals was probably human-specific, as I mentioned before. Okay, so far and so good, but don't we all come from mitochondrial Eve and don't we all come from Y-chromosome Adam? So you may have heard, it's actually fairly common in, in Christian circles, to hear that 
Well, wait a minute. We all come from one woman who lived in Africa about 180,000 years ago. Well, not that Answers in Genesis would say that time frame, but we all came from one woman, and we all came from one man. I think current estimates are Y chromosome, the common ancestor of Y chromosomes is at about 350 years, thousand years ago or so. So how is this the case? Dennis, you're telling me we come from 10,000, but you're also telling us that we all come from one man and one woman? And the answer is yes. Don't worry, I'll explain. So mitochondrial DNA has a particular inheritance pattern. It's only passed on from mother to offspring. So sperm can't transmit a mitochondrion to offspring. So mitochondria are these little subcellular factories that do energy conversion for us. They have their own little circular chromosome, and they're only passed on by the mothers. So next Mother's Day, when you're writing your Mother's Day card, thanks, Mom, for the mitochondria. My wife sometimes says, yeah, that's why I'm so tired all the time. The kid's got all my mitochondria. I'm like, no, it doesn't quite work that way, but anyway. I'm tired too, and I didn't pass any on. <laughs> what can happen in a population, so this is the same population that we looked at previously, the same group. Because mitochondria can get stuck, as it were, they can fail to be passed on if they get into a male lineage. Like, for example, my, my mitochondria, they're a dead end. They're not going anywhere, right? What that means is, is you can have certain variants actually take over a population. So if you look at this, we've got these three different colors, red, uh, green, and blue. And you can see that the red variant of mitochondrial DNA actually comes to dominate this population, simply because the other um, variants end up in men, or they end up in women who don't pass it on. Similarly, Y chromosome DNA is only passed on through males. So in this example, we have, it's the same group of individuals, but in this population, we have one individual outlined in yellow there, filled in with yellow, who is the common Y chromosome ancestor for this entire population. And the other variants of Y chromosomes have been lost because they didn't get passed on by, they couldn't be passed on by females or they ended up in um, males that didn't have um, male offspring or so they didn't get passed down to the present day. Now, regular chromosomal DNA is actually passed on equally by both genders. So there's no barrier to transmission for just regular chromosomal DNA. So what we have here is in this one group, we have mitochondrial DNA. All, everybody's mitochondria comes from that woman at the top right. Everybody's Y chromosome comes from that man highlighted in yellow. But their regular chromosomal DNA comes down from individuals, all of the individuals at the top of this group. So yes, we come from one mitochondrial Eve who lived about 180,000 years ago, one man who lived about 350,000 years ago, plus or minus, and we come from a population of 10,000 individuals who have passed on their regular chromosomal DNA down to us from the past. Okay, why don't we sum up a bit here. So I've shown you some converging lines of evidence that support the hypothesis that life on Earth is the product of an evolutionary creation, that God used the evolutionary product process to bring about biodiversity, including our own species, into being. Moreover, we have converging lines of evidence from different measures that use different assumptions that our species, as it became human, always numbered about 10,000 individuals or more. So where do we go from here? And this is where my students say, I don't want to be here. I want to know, I want to come back 150 years from now when it's all worked out and I don't have to struggle with it. So I would say that a truly Christian approach needs to take both forms of revelation that we have available to us seriously. 
So we need to take both scripture and science seriously, neither ignoring one or the other, nor uncritically accepting one or the other. And to that end, don't take what I say for granted. Um, do your homework. Um, one way to do that is to read the book that I've written with Scott McKnight or look at other resources. Do your best to inform yourself on these topics and try to understand why it is so many Christian biologists and biologists in general find the lines of evidence for evolution convincing. Okay, but both of these forms of revelation come from God, and we can honor God by doing the best science that we can and also the best exegesis and hermeneutics that we can. We also have to remain humble. We have to recognize that both human science and human exegesis or interpretation are fallible. Now, here's something I'll say that might be a bit provocative, but nonetheless, I'll make the point as well. In cases, however, where we have solid scientific evidence and that evidence remains strong, perhaps over decades or centuries of examination, Christians are well within their rights, as it were. They have good warrant to re-examine their interpretation of special revelation. And the reason there is, there's twofold. Our exegesis can be, can be wrong. It's been wrong in the past in ways that we have no trouble with now, saying, oh, yeah, it's phenomenological language about heliocentrism, no problem. So many of my students just go go past that so quickly now. I'm like, do you realize that the effort and time it took to get to that point? And now we are the beneficiaries of that particular process, but it wasn't easy at the time. It won't be easy now, but it's still something that we're called to do as Christians, to look at science and to look at scripture. And again, if we have the conviction that God is the author of both, then we can be confident that at the end of the day that these will cohere in some way. Okay. I also see myself my role as a believing scientist in the process is to serve the church by providing the very best scientific information possible. Now, I recognize that others who are also similarly trained don't have the same, same viewpoints, and that's why I'm glad that we can have a discussion uh, here together today. But I do feel that the church needs to be well served on the science front such that that science can effectively inform our hermeneutics and our exegesis. Okay, I'll point you at a few resources. I've written for the BioLogos Foundation for a number of years. I've been with them since 2011 in an official capacity. And there are many resources available on the BioLogos website that you could find out more about these topics on. Just a few um, series that I maybe would highlight to you. I've written a series called Adam, Eve, and Human Population Genetics. I wrote that in, um, about a year and a bit ago. And that's a thorough discussion of the evidence, some of which I've shown you today, but also other lines of evidence. And it's also an interaction with a number of Christians who take a different view and my interaction with their arguments. There's also the Evolution Basics series, which is on the BioLogos website, biologos.org. And that is intended to sort of be an Evolution 101 sort of series. Perhaps you haven't taken biology in a long time, but you're interested in these topics and you just want to learn what the science of evolution is all about. This is a very large series. It's 50 posts long, and it'll take you from a very simple beginning and then eventually up to a relatively sophisticated understanding of how evolution works. And lastly, of course, the book, Adam and the Genome, that I was privileged to co-author with Scott McKnight. My half of the book is the evidence for evolution and the evidence for population um, sizes, some of which I've shown you here, but other lines of evidence are in the book. And then Scott says, okay, if this is in fact the case scientifically, what might, might we think about in terms of re-examining the special revelation side of the equation? 
do we have warrant to go back to the scriptures and say, okay, maybe we've been getting this wrong. And hear me well, science never dictates what our exegesis should be. Science isn't in the driver's seat. What science can do is it can flag up for us that perhaps our exegesis hasn't been accurate. Now, that doesn't mean that science predetermines what our exegesis might find, but it can prompt us to reinvestigate the text. So science isn't going to determine what we decide exegetically, but it can prompt us to return to the text, just like heliocentrism did in the past. And with that, I'll thank you for your attention, and uh, we'll take our break, I believe. Thank you.